Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll look at the busy congressional agenda with John Lieber, Managing Director of the Eurasia Group's United States Practice, leading coverage of politics and policy in Washington. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman joins the conversation. Well, prior to joining the, the Eurasia Group, John Lieber worked for a dozen years at the highest level of the United States government, including as an economist on the Ways and Means Committee, Associate Director of the National Economic Council at the White House, and a Senior Economic Policy Advisor to Senator uh, Mitch McConnell. And in these roles, he advised senior elected officials on a wide range of economic, fiscal, tax, trade, and financial services policy. And he was a key Republican leadership staffer uh, working on these issues and frankly helping to keep the government funded between 2010 and 2014. So we're very, very happy to have him on the show today. John and Tori, welcome back to Facing the Future. Good morning. Thanks for having us. A couple of weeks ago, Tori wrote a, uh, a blog for us called uh, uh, So Much Time, So Much to Do. And, you know, Concord is, uh, I mean, Congress is certainly uh, coming back with an enormous agenda. Um, among the items that, uh, that they're going to have to try to get to this year are the regular appropriations bills, emergency supplemental aid for Ukraine, um, COVID funding, emergency supplemental. Well, maybe not emergency, but a supplemental. But they also want to deal with inflation, uh, the proposals for student uh, loan debt relief, maybe trying to put back together a reconciliation bill, problems at the southern border. Uh, you know, the list is it's a pretty extensive list. Uh, so we couldn't think of anybody better to sort of run through these things uh, than you, because a lot of these things are going to require a combination of uh, logistical skills or leisure domain and uh, policy chops. So let's let's begin with regular order, because uh and it might be the least likely thing that they're going to get to right now. But at some point, at this point of the year, you usually think of them beginning the appropriations bills for next year, for fiscal year 2023, which begins in October. They really haven't gotten off to, to much of a start yet, but let's just tee up that little part of regular order because before we get to all the supplementals, what do you, how do you see the appropriations process playing out this year? Yeah, I think there's just no chance that they move bills through regular order this year. Um, I mean, it, I don't even think they're trying that hard. Mm -hmm. They just wrapped up the uh, appropriations process for fiscal year 22. We're about halfway through the fiscal year, and they just finished uh, legislating here in March with the uh, full year appropriations bill. And I, I just think that the reality is their ambitions aren't that great this year. They don't have a budget. Um, they don't have the top line uh, numbers they've to, to, to even build an appropriations bill around. And with the political elections coming up in November, there's just not a huge incentive to 
work together. So I, I think probably what you get is a CR continuing resolution that they'll push, you know, post the August recess in October. Um, that could be a venue for litigating some of the unsettled issues that you mentioned, for example, um, COVID aid or Title 42, which is this requirement that they expel migrants from Mexico on public health grounds. Um, but beyond that, I just think it's really unlikely that they get anything done. The Democrats probably lose the House in the elections and they come back and try to you know, put the pieces back together in December and see if they can agree on something then. And probably no budget resolution this year, you think? I'd be shocked. I mean, I don't even think they have the votes for it. I, I mean, I, I, maybe you could pass one in the House. I don't know why you'd bother trying. But with no agreement around Build Back Better, no real agreement around what to do on taxes and, you know, kind of the potential for a looming recession. I, I don't think they have the um, the votes, the 50 votes they need in the Senate to pass something. And I'd be surprised if they had the 218 they need to pass something in the House. So this is just a function of Congress being so evenly divided. I mean, we've never had a Senate that's been 50-50 for this long. And it's really difficult to legislate in a normal 50-50 Senate. But the Democrats have the added disadvantage of their 50th center, Senator, Joe Manchin, being from a really Republican state. So the guy's got just very little incentive to cooperate with anything they want to do. The 74 Act is Budget Act has really failed to achieve its goals. Um, it's obsolete at this point. Um, the, the, the deadlines are routinely ignored, as you, as you point out. And you know, I think you're right. It's only used now to, to unlock reconciliation. So we're on a path that eventually the filibuster probably goes away in the Senate within the next 10 years. And once the filibuster is gone, reconciliation will even be not important anymore. Right. So I think that this is, you know, you, you need a, you know, we, we've gone through eras of government reform in the past, uh, military reform, uh, pension reform, budget reform, and you're going to need some external trigger to force a reform in the budget process. And I, I think we're very far away from that. We're not close to having that happen now, but the budget pro budget law is really not serving its, its function anymore. And, you know, most of the spending is on autopilot now. So I just want to ask a follow-up question on the appropriations process. This is one thing that's got me noodling uh, and sitting up at night staring at the ceiling. If the Republicans do take one or both chambers in the November elections, do does Congress try and get their homework done, get all the appropriations bills done, like in a in a in a giant omnibus before they re you know they go home at the end of the of the year, you know before Christmas, or do Republicans try and force a continuing resolution into next calendar year, twenty twenty three? Because at that point they'll control at least one of the pens and be able to, you know, help draft the, the legislation. Do you see uh, them finishing up their work before the end of the year or does this get pushed into next year like it did this year? Yeah. I mean, there's always competing theories of the case here, right? So right. sometimes you've got minorities coming into the majority who argue, well, look, let's just clear the decks. We don't want to have to deal with this the first thing next year. Mm -hmm. And then other times you've got people who say, look, we want to be in control. We, we want the pen. And that'll be a division within the Republicans. If you, if you look at previous election cycles, like 2018, where the House majority flipped from uh, Democrat to Republican, excuse me, from Republican to Democrat, the appropriations bills weren't finished until early in 2019. And that's, you know, the Democrats came in and they wanted to have a role in writing their own laws. Now, these appropriations bills tend to be pretty bipartisan. So there's input from both sides that will be reflected. I suspect that'll be the case this year as well. I think one interesting dynamic that's happening right now is you've got inflation eroding away at the federal government's spending power. And you also have a war in Ukraine, which is really fueling a resurgence in concern about the need to fully and completely and perhaps excessively fund national security. Mm -hmm. And so you've got Republicans who are out there saying they want to see the Department of Defense 
uh, budget increase by 5% over the rate of inflation. So if inflation is 8% this year, that means you're going to get 13% increase in the Department of Defense. Well, that doesn't come free. If you want that, you have to be willing to do a deal on the domestic discretionary spending. And, and this deal can happen no matter who's in power. It's really just a function of kind of how willing members are to come back in town in November and December after they've lost a tough election and how willing they are to do a deal at that point. And, and that's kind of the unknown variable at this point. My guess is like previous election cycles where somebody loses the house, you end up kicking this into next year, but there could be a really strong evidence to get it done now. So speaking of, of Ukraine and the war and the defense budget, I wanted to talk to you about one of the, the pressing issues right now that's staring Congress in the face. And that is the idea of uh, President Biden's uh, proposal for supplemental defense aid for Ukraine. He submitted a proposal a couple of weeks, I think a week ago for $33 billion um, to, to provide additional weaponry and, and humanitarian aid for Ukraine. Um, once again, the, the Senate has sort of tied themselves into a, a Gordian knot in that Democrats want to attach COVID aid to the, the president's uh, Ukraine uh, supplemental appropriations bill. Uh, Republicans obviously don't they don't like that idea. And they say that any vote on on COVID aid will require also a vote on Title 2042, which you, you just mentioned. Um, and Democrats really want to avoid a vote on, on Title 42 because it'll split uh, their conference and it could potentially doom the package in the House. Um, we know that defense money that was previously appropriated for Ukraine is is running low um, and the time, you know, the, the clock is ticking. So I'm curious what your thoughts are about how this Gordian knot gets untangled and when. Yeah, I think that this gets resolved pretty quickly. I think that there's uh, the, the White House signaled last night or on Monday night that um, they were likely to they were they were OK with the Ukraine money going on its own. So it looks like what's going to happen here is the House seems set to pass almost $40 billion in emergency supplementals for the emergency supplemental for Ukraine, which is $7 billion above the administration's ask for 33. And then in the Senate, yeah, it could get a little trickier. Um, but I think once this, this money is really, there's a bipartisan view that this Ukraine money is really urgently needed. Um, there's bipartisan support for helping the Ukrainians in their war against the Russians. And uh, you know, I, I think that that means this is going to get cleared pretty quickly. I think the COVID aid, aid ends up falling apart. The White House has signaled they're okay with that. That means that the COVID aid probably has to come back later in the year, perhaps on a CR, uh, maybe in, in October or in September um, is probably the time for that. And I don't really know how they deal with the Title 42. I think that's a vote the administration is likely to lose. The deadline for this is coming up pretty soon. The courts could still stay the decision made by President Biden to suspend the Title 42 expulsions. But I think the probably the likeliest outcome here is you get the money, the Ukraine money clearing the House maybe this week, the Senate probably next week, getting out the door fast so that the DOD can rebuild their uh, material. And then the COVID aid in Title 42 will be lived to fight another day. Mitch McConnell, when he was the minority leader in the Senate, once said, and which he is now, but he has been in the past as well, he used to say that, that tough votes were the price of leadership. So when it comes to this, you know, Title 42 amendment, I mean, it's it's relevant to COVID aid, right? I mean, do you think that uh, Chuck Schumer is is sort of taking a, a an unrealistic stand and an inappropriate stand when it comes to denying a vote on on Title 42 when it comes to COVID aid? Yes, I mean, I think that they, um, you're right. Tough votes are the price of leadership, but the leaders have a really both leaders, McConnell and Schumer and Reid before him and others have been pretty effective at shielding their members from having to take tough votes. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's a lot of tough talk about taking tough votes, but it's just not as, you know, the environment we're in, it's 
members don't want to do it. Um, that said, to your point, it is relevant to COVID aid. The risk for Schumer is that the bill would pass, that there's actually 60 votes for uh, forcing the extension of Title 42, which would be a setback for President Biden. Biden could pivot on Title 42. I mean, I think the political winds are blowing really strongly in favor of continuing these expulsions. Immigration is is emerging as a major issue. uh, And with COVID cases rising, right? I mean, we're not done with COVID yet, so... Right. Yeah, we're not done with COVID yet, but there's no real urgency around the money. I, mean, I don't think anybody is saying that, you know, they're basically saying we need this money for the fall. We need it for treatments. We need it for uh, testing down the road. I mean, for most voters, this is just COVID is not on their mind. If you look at kind of polls that talk about uh, top issues for voters, number one with a bullet is the economy. Number right. two, last year was COVID. This year, earlier this year was war. And both of those issues have dropped over the last couple of months to be you know, somewhere in the middle of the pack. Um, you know, and so the, the top issues are things like immigration, healthcare, crime, sort of standard set of issues and COVID and war have really dropped off. So voters aren't following this at all. So I don't think there's any political urgency around doing the COVID money. Um, and and I think it's probably going to wait because of that. There's probably more political urgency about the Title 42 issue. Um, yeah, it's been surprising the degree to which you've seen Democratic senators, moderates really rebuke the administration on this issue. I mean, you've got uh, Maggie Hassan, the, the senator from New Hampshire, went down to the border to, to, to kind of signal how strongly she was taking this issue. Uh, Mark Kelly, the sen- in-cycle senator from Arizona, has said that he thinks that it's appropriate to keep this going. So it's there's a lot of folks who, um, Democrats, who don't agree with the administration's stance on this. And, and that's why I think that they could lose a vote here. And that's why it's a really dangerous vote for, for Schumer to allow. It, 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 it may be a wise thing to sit back and see what happens with the courts also, because, you, you right. I mean, they might not have to take a tough vote if the court uh, gets them off the hook. Um, so that's another yeah. reason that you might see delay, I think. Absolutely. And the courts have saved the Biden administration from itself on other challenge, politically challenging issues, most notably the vaccine mandate for large employers and then the mask mandate on planes and trains and public transportation. Um, the courts overturned both of those things. And, you know, polling suggests that people are generally supportive of the vaccine mandate and are generally supportive of the transportation mask mandate, but behavior suggests otherwise. And if you look at people now that the uh, mask mandate is lifted on planes, people aren't wearing masks on planes anymore. So I think that the Biden administration's had, had, had a couple um, uh, run-ins with the courts that have saved them from politically challenging issues so far this year. You know, one of the things about Title 42 that it brings up is is the desperate need for immigration reform, because this is this is a public health uh, ordinance uh, provision that's being used as a basically as an immigration policy. And, um, you know, as you know, as we were talking about, uh, as the covid uh, situation changes or recedes, it, it may be coming back again. But I mean, the justification for Title 42 uh, as a public health issue wanes, but it's the, the danger is that it's being used as an immigration reform uh, policy, which it's really not intended for. So, I mean, we're a lot of times people sort of talking across purposes with each other on this thing. And, and while I guess there's no immediate uh, prospect of this happening, it would be nice if we just kind of restructured our legal uh, immigration and enforcement system. 
Yeah, I think that immigration is, a, you know, it's a fascinating issue. I mean, it's it's obvious. It's, it's been one of the major drivers of polarization in the U.S. over the last 20 years. Uh, it's been one of the major drivers. Uh, it was a major driver in the election of Donald Trump in 2016. And I think the Republican Party in particular has really turned on the issue. But what's really interesting is how little progress the Biden administration's made. I mean, they can barely pass even the most lowest hanging of fruit on immigration reform out of the Democratic House early in the Biden administration, when a president's at the peak of his powers, Biden's approval ratings was in the low 60s, and even the House could barely agree to do anything on green cards or do anything on temporary workers. I mean, just the kind of most basic stuff. So this just shows you how incredibly divisive this is and how far we are from having any kind of uh, majority consensus on what to do about immigration. And I think that's one of the more interesting takeaways. That'll be one of the more interesting takeaway legacies of the Biden administration is the fact that you know, this is so divisive, not even Democrats can agree on it. It's interesting because I thought the labor shortage that we're experiencing might right now might might encourage some some activity. But, you know, you yeah, I mean, that's kind of one of the things no one wants to talk about is that immigrants are just incredibly important in the service industry. And one of the reasons you're seeing these massive shortages is because we're short by somewhere between 500,000 and a million workers because of immigration slowdown that began uh, really in 2019 and then was exacerbated by the pandemic. Um, and, and it's not, I haven't heard any politician take this issue that seriously yet. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's probably a pivot that reflects the current political dynamic that we're going to be with, is going to be with us for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah, it wasn't that long ago that the Senate passed with something like 70 votes uh, close to it, a uh, very comprehensive immigration reform bill. So pivot student loans. Um, President Biden is considering a proposal to cancel uh, a large amount of student loan debt. We don't know how much. Um, he's just mulling at this point. Nothing's been announced. Um, we know that most federal student loan payments have been suspended since uh, March 2020. That was sort of a, a policy response to the COVID recession. Um, and the current uh, suspension of payments goes through to, I guess, August 31st. There are economists on left, right, and center who say canceling student debt uh, is unnecessary, it's inflationary, it's regressive, it's unfair, and it's an inefficient use of taxpayer dollars. So I guess the first question right out of the gate is, is there a policy rationale for, for, for canceling student debt? There is a policy rationale for people for canceling the debt of people who were encouraged to take on debt by the federal government for degrees that do not increase their lifetime income. So, you know, you get into a, you know, you go to a for-profit college, which, uh, and the federal government is subsidizing your debt burden there. And, you know, the, the federal government, for whatever reason, the college closes, you don't graduate, you graduate with a degree that's worthless. I mean, there are sympathetic stories of people who have taken out debt without really fully knowing what they were doing or, or the long-term consequences of that. And I think there's a sympathetic case for some of these borrowers to have their debt forgiven. I think what the kind of progressives are pushing and what the Biden administration is looking at is much broader than this and has very little policy justification for you know forgiving the debt of, of high income, of, of somebody that comes from a high income family who then goes into a high income career and is carrying a debt burden where they have to put you know three to four hundred dollars a month of their income, of their eighty to hundred thousand dollar income um, towards their debt uh, payments. That, that policy policy justification is is very is very weak to me, um, and I you know that suggests that there's a lot of politics at play here. Uh, we're going to have to take our first break. 
at this point, and we will come back to the uh, student loan issue on the other side of it. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Tori Gorman and I are talking with John Lieber of the Eurasia Group. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are discussing the congressional agenda with John Lieber, Managing Director of Eurasia Group's United States Practice and a former Senior Economic Policy Advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell. Uh, And Tori, before the break, you and John were discussing student loan debt cancellation. Mm -hmm. Uh, Back to you. Yeah, I just I wanted to talk about I I think uh, it's possible for for President Biden to design a a forgiveness program that that addresses several concerns. Uh, You know, you can talk about means testing and and what type of 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 degree uh, you were pursuing, et cetera. I think it's possible to sort of eliminate your your MBAs, your PhDs, your 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 lawyers and your your doctors. But the one thing that I think is really hard (laughs) to solve one of the problems that's really hard to solve when it comes to student loan cancellation is the the fairness issue. And that you've got a whole bunch of students in in years past, families, they paid off their student loans or they saved money uh, and were able to pay for, for their education. Plus you've got a you know, forward looking, you've got a whole bunch of, you know, kids right now that might be in in middle school or high school and, you know, college for them is still five, maybe 10 years away that aren't going to be advantaged by this debt cancellation process. So it's, it's, there's a fairness issue here that is really, it really rings uh, for, for a lot of people. And I was wondering, is there, (laughs) do you see any way to get around that, that fairness issue or address it in any way? Well, look, I don't, I don't want to have people with pitchforks descending on my offices or the offices of the, mm-hmm. of the Concord Coalition, but of course, I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, mean, I think that this is a, there's major fairness challenges with this policy, and I don't know what I don't I haven't heard the Biden administration really address this. I think that Biden himself had really strong instincts on this early on, where he was opposed to doing the debt cancellation, and he basically ruled it out. But I think as the political tides have turned against them, they see this as an opportunity to, to rally part of their coalition. Um, and their coalitions, and that's young people with high levels of student loan, um, people who took on a lot of debt, who live in you know near in or near major cities um, to go to school, and I think that's what this is about is the politics. And I, I just haven't heard Biden address the fairness of this. You have heard some Republicans bring this issue up um, that you know this is this is basically forcing farmers and others to pay for the uh, you know the, the pottery degrees of high income uh, families. And I think that's going to be an issue in the in the midterm election. But the question for the, the Biden administration is: Do the benefits of rallying their base who like this policy outweigh the costs um, of probably rallying people who don't like them all that much anyway already against them? Mm-hmm. And and then there's the whole issue of you know he wants to, if he does this he's going to do this by executive order, which right. sort of gets in the you, you start to wonder wait isn't that what Congress is supposed to do? Isn't Congress supposed to pass laws as you know the ones with the powers of the purse is, is Congress? Congress decides how we spend money. It, it seems uh, a little head scratching that the administration thinks that they could do this by administrative order. Right, and and that also you know there's no opportunities for reform in the executive order. You know you could do things that could potentially reduce. Uh, the, the 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 need for this down the road. You could do things that uh, disincentivize the huge tuition increases that we've seen at universities over the last thirty years. Um, if you did it, if you did it through legislation, but an executive order that just cancels whatever the amount of debt is means that you're probably not going to get those reforms. 
which just incentivizes people to take out more loans and incentivizes universities and colleges to increase their tuitions ever higher. And that's a really bad cycle for the for the country. Yeah, big moral hazard problem. Yeah, it seems like just as a fiscal matter, the the amount, the, the total amount canceled could be really big. I mean, it obviously depends on what they do. Uh, but the indi- the individual impact wouldn't necessarily be that great. I mean, if they limit it to something like ten thousand or something like that, the a positive impact on the individual you wouldn't get a lot of bang for buck. But for the federal government in total, it could be a huge amount of money. Which even if it were offset, it would be taking offsets that could be going gone for something else that might be a higher and better use. So it it, it does seem to me that it just as a fiscal matter, there are some drawbacks there to the to the approach. Yeah, I think the numbers that you get like a trillion dollar, I think the estimate is something like a trillion dollar increase, one-time increase in debt, because now this you've got these uh, uh, assets of the federal government been turned to, uh, wiped out. So you get this increase in debt. And then for the individual, I mean, the individual median student loan amount is zero for most Americans because most Americans don't have loans. But for Americans that do, the median burden is somewhere between twenty and thirty thousand dollars, I think. So, if you took away ten thousand dollars of that, they'd still be left with something. You know, their payments are are in the low hundreds of dollars a month, um, and they'd still be making those payments. I, mean, I, I, you know, I think the other salient thing here, Tori, is something you mentioned, which is that the uh, suspension of student loan payments goes until uh, August, and you know, August is only you know about forty days before November. Uh, mm-hmm. elections. And that seems like a really bad time to mm-hmm. be forcing people to start making their payments again. So at the very <laughs> least, I would expect to see that deadline extended, extended. To, the, to the end of the year. Agreed. Agreed. So, uh, Bob, you want to talk about Build Back Better? Sure. Uh, we can. Uh, and this one may uh, flop over into the next segment, too. You never know. Um, <laughs> but uh, OK, so Build Back Better, which is technically doesn't exist anymore. There's no such thing as Build Back Better. But there is still a reconciliation bill uh, out there. The Democrats still have that protection of reconciliation for something. And uh, they're trying to put that together and not let a reconciliation uh, opportunity go to waste. The, The top contenders seem to be some sort of prescription drug negotiation bill, um, uh, uh, some sort of uh, climate change tax incentives, uh, and uh, I don't know, some maybe some way to to pay for it. But uh, there's, I, I'm not sure where the Venn diagram is that uh, gets everything together. So what just what is your perspective on the ability to put together some sort of a reconciliation bill uh, this year? I, I think a reconciliation bill is is all but dead. Um, you know, it's just it's proven too difficult to get every Democrat rowing in the same direction at the same time. And, uh, you know, Manchin, who we talked about earlier, really benefits from being an outlier in the party. I mean, if you look at his approval ratings over the last year, they've skyrocketed in West Virginia and they've particularly skyrocketed with Republican voters who he really needs to win reelection because West Virginia is a state that went for President Trump by 40 points. So he needs the approval of Republican voters. The more he holds out on Build Back Better, the better off he is at home. And there's just no real incentive for him to play team ball on this issue. And now you've got these reports that he started these bipartisan talks, which I'm not really sure I believe, I'm not sure I believe are actually happening. But if he is engaged in bipartisan talks, that makes it even less likely that he's going to leave the bipartisan table. 
and go back to the partisan table uh, in order to pass something here. I just think that it becomes exceedingly difficult for him to, to pull that off. Um, and so I, I think Build Back Better and any other reconciliation bill is really dead. Um, and, you know, I think the best you could hope for would be cobbling together some kind of defense supplemental for Ukraine. And that's probably all you do on the fiscal side. Mm-hmm. Well, you have um, this gang of 20 uh, or whatever in the Senate. And, uh, you know, you mentioned bipartisan talks. I mean, some of them are in election cycle and it, it is good to be working on things in a bipartisan way. So I could see that the talks proceeding somewhat. I mean, they managed to pull, pull together a, a COVID relief bill at the end of December in uh, 2020, I guess it was. Um, and they were helpful, uh, certainly in the infrastructure bill. Uh, so I could see something going along there, although it might just be a placeholder for them to, uh, you know, put put down some markers without actually um, having a bill that, that got passed. Yeah, I think the thing about bipartisan talks is that you don't actually need an outcome in order to get a political benefit. So just showing up and saying that you're talking to your colleagues is probably enough for most members. I mean, if you think about the bipartisan infrastructure bill, yeah, they pass something, but no one's talking about it. And I don't think a lot of members get benefits from the, the money that starts flowing directly with voters. So I think you're right. Like the best case scenario would be they put down a marker and then maybe they can come back next year if they find themselves with the need for some big fiscal deal, or maybe, maybe, maybe in December, if a big fiscal package comes together um, at the last minute, that would do, uh, you know, the the bipartisan, the, the China Innovation Act or something like that. Um, I think that's probably the best case scenario, but it just seems really unlikely to me that these bipartisan talks go anywhere. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, as, as a deficit hawk, I get really concerned sometimes when these bipartisan talks actually lead to, to, to cogent le- legislation, because it yeah. usually means everybody gets what they want and the pay-fors just fall off. And yeah, I think the right. infrastructure bill is, is a prime example of that. So it's Absolutely. like, yay, they're getting along, but boo, they're not being fiscally responsible. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And it's actually interesting. I mean, I think that there was a moment in time where the Build Back Better revival was pivoting towards a real deficit yep. reduction bill. Um, which on balance probably would have been good. I mean, yep. you think you could have had, you know, you would have had tax increases that would you know, hurt companies and the productive capacity of the U.S. to some degree. But you also could have had, you know, a, one of the largest, you had the potential for one of the largest deficit reduction bills in recent memory. Right. And I think that that, moment, that window is closed, mm-hmm. um, but that, that, that possibility was there. And I, I don't see that being revived right now. Mm-hmm. Why did that close? I mean, uh, you know, the administration has been uh, trying to tout deficit reduction as kind of a, uh, you know, uh, an accomplishment. It, it, it seems to be uh, happening, you know, um, regardless of policy agenda because of this. <laughs> That's right. Things flowing back in. But but take credit for whatever is happening. But anyway. Um, you know, that idea looked like it might have some potential. Uh, the administration was putting in some, you know, explicitly including deficit reduction as a goal of the uh, the reconciliation bill, which would be one of the classic uses, the classic use of reconciliation when it was first enacted. So why did that uh, not not catch hold? I, I think it closed because they don't have a good understanding of how to deal with Joe Manchin. And when Manchin came out in December and said he was not in favor of Build Back Better, they torched him. I mean, the White House put out statements slamming him, accusing him of acting in bad faith. Schumer put out a statement saying he was acting in bad faith. And I think they really, really hurt their ability to cooperate with Manchin going forward. They kind of revi- tried to revive the efforts and build it up around a deficit reduction bill, which Manchin wanted. 
But then, you know, there's been no progress on it. And in the meantime, they've allowed Manchin to start up these by, you know, may or may not be a real bipartisan conversation. Right. I think that just puts them out of their reach. And I'm going to add one more point to that, too, is I don't think there are revenue increases that have 50 votes in the Senate. I don't think you can get Senator Sinema from Arizona and Senator Manchin on the same page when it comes to tax increases on big corporations. I, I think they are they are literally what they would support are mutually exclusive. Yeah, that's well, interesting. I don't know. I mean, Manchin said he's not, you know, he's, he said that he's in favor of some things, 25 uh, percent corporate rate. 28% uh, uh, sorry, 25% corporate rate, higher income tax rates. But, you know, cinema has taken those off the table. But I haven't heard Manchin say he's not in favor of the tax increases that were in Build Back Better. I mean, you could take the tax increases from Build Back Better and easily get to $1.6 or $1.7 trillion through a corporate minimum tax, the uh, worldwide global minimum tax, the surtax on people making over $10 million, denying business deductions for some flow through businesses. There's a package of tax increases that already passed the House that I think could get you hundreds of billions, if not over a trillion dollars. And we haven't, Manchin says he wants more than that, but he doesn't really need it. If he wanted to get a deal, it feels like he, could, he can come to a deal. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are discussing the congressional agenda with John Lieber. Managing Director of the Eurasia Group's United States Practice and a former Senior Economic Policy Advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman and I are uh, discussing the congressional agenda with John Lieber, Managing Director of Eurasia Group's United States Practice and a former Senior Economic Policy Advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell. Uh, Okay, so sometime in 2023, uh, the debt limit is going to come back on the agenda because Congress kicked it forward for a while. Um, Tori, you, you've got an interesting question for John about, uh, about the debt limit and a Republican uh, majority. Yeah, I realize we're sort of, of, of straying from the original topic, uh, which was, what's Congress going to do this year? We're looking a little bit ahead to, to next year, peeking around the corner. And it's probably true that, that the Congress is going to have to deal with the debt limit next year. And, and my question is, if, if Republicans succeed, as expected, in taking one or both chambers in the November elections, uh, you know, President Biden, Democrat, will still be President Biden. So what are Republicans going to ask for from the president in exchange for their votes for raising the debt limit? Yeah, this is a tough, this is a tough issue. I think that, um, you know, you look at what the, I mean, you know, the Senate has been typically quiet um, about what their plans are, should they take the majority. You know, McConnell's view is that they don't need to have really detailed policy plans um, to, to, to roll out during the election. It just opens them to attack. But in the House, they're working together on this. These They have these task groups and task forces are focusing on things like the economy and healthcare and a bunch of other things. And, and they want to come at come out of the gates with a proactive agenda. And I think that, you know, we don't know exactly these task forces recommendations are a little vague. So we don't know exactly what's going to be the price for the debt ceiling increase. But this is going to be a really, really challenging bill, uh, vote. And I think that it's going to be very hard to get a lot of Republicans to vote in favor of a, of a debt ceiling increase. And I think you're going to end up having a vote that gets done with a lot of Democrats. Mm-hmm. Now, what are the Republicans going to try to leverage here? 
Well, I think that, you know, if the past tells us anything, it's that, you know, there's this, this is seen as an opportunity to get some pretty politically charged things. And I don't think those things are going to be fiscal in nature next year. I think you probably have this dynamic we talked about earlier where Republicans are actually potentially in favor of increasing uh, defense spending and therefore will be willing to do a deal on, on domestic discretionary spending. So I don't see fiscal policies being in play. I do think that if you look at what the GOP is campaigning on this year, there's a lot of social stuff. So, you know, a lot of social stuff, a lot of anti-Biden stuff. So I think that you probably see, you know, if, if, I, if I were making demands, if I'm in the room kind of collecting demands from members and what they want on, on their vote on the, on the debt limit, I think you're going to hear people offering things like, you know, opposing mask mandates, opposing vaccine mandates, some other kind of unfinished business from the pandemic. I think you're going to have stuff about uh, education. Uh, if you look at, you know, Republicans think they have a strong message on education and talking about race issues or transgender issues in schools is probably going to be one of the politically charged things that could get linked up here. I, I bet they're going to try to fire Anthony Fauci and they could see the debt limit as a must-pass bill. It's an opportunity to do that. You know, then you've got actual things that are, are related to inflation, such as increasing domestic fossil fuel production. You know, the very first vote of the Republican majority in 2015 was on the Keystone XL pipeline, which here we are, you know, seven years later, and it's still, you know, it's still not done. And it is actually still politically relevant mm -hmm. because it's related to the cost and availability of fuel. Um, you know, so I think you're going to see a lot of stuff like that. I'd be really surprised if you end up seeing anything on the fiscal side. And I think Democrats are going to give a lot of that a thumbs down. And because Biden's president, you'll have a vote that ends up being overwhelmingly Democratic, plus some Republicans getting this done sometime in February, March of next year. So the last time we had this experience with a Republican-controlled Congress spending that was out of control and a Democratic president, we ended up with something called the Budget Control Act, which uh, capped discretionary spending um, for 10 years. Um, that was kind of a, a, an arduous and painful process for, for both parties. You don't see any, any talk. Of, of that ever uh, in, in, in as far as the debt limit goes or, or any kind of budget process reforms of any kind? It's possible. And I think one of the advantages of the, the Deficit Control Act was that you had um, you had a, a process that set up kind of a, you know, a, 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 the need to renegotiate the caps, the discretionary caps every two years. Mm -hmm. And that over the court, the 10 year life of span of the, of the Budget Control Act led to a bunch of bipartisan agreements, all of which increased spending, but they did kind of, you know, create some structure around the appropriations process that doesn't exist today. So I think you could argue that was probably a virtue. It's certainly possible. I mean, I think that, you know, I think one of the challenges here is that is what we talked about earlier, which is that you're going to, I think you're going to have a lot of people who want the government to spend more money. No one actually is that concerned about deficits right now politically. Um, so it's, it's certainly possible. I, I don't know, you know, I don't think that anyone's really focused on this in Congress right now or really asking themselves the question, what are we, what are we going to need to do to get this done? Um, but I, I wouldn't rule that out. Mm -hmm. Seems to me it could be a real challenge for McCarthy. If the house goes back to Republican hands, um, you mentioned that there'd have to be a lot of democratic votes and, you know, in the past that that was a problem for Boehner. It was a problem for Ryan. Uh, you know, and you had to make a deal that you had to get Democratic votes. So given the nature of the House caucus, um, uh, particularly uh, if they take over the House, um, a, a, a deal that uh, to raise the debt limit uh, with the Biden administration could be problematic for um, getting a majority of the majority to vote. Yes, yeah, right. right. You know, it could be very difficult. I don't think McCarthy wants to come out of the gate with this, which actually opens the door to there being some kind of deal in December of this year. 
that clears the decks on both appropriated spending, gives you a CR or whatever through October, and does a debt limit extension. I think that actually would be a deal that if I were in Kevin McCarthy's shoes, I would take in a heartbeat. Now, there may be a lot of pressure on him to not take a deal like that. And there may not be 60 votes in the Senate for a deal like that. But I think that would be a really nice way to wrap all these issues up, knowing that you know the Q1 of, in Q1 of 2023, you don't want to spend distracted by a potential default. This is something that's sort of been occupying my mind. And I, I ask a whole bunch of people. And John, you're one of the smartest people I know and, and, and very forward thinking. So I want to ask you as well. You know, we're sort of in a position right now where the torch of leadership is passing from the baby boomers to uh, the next the next generation, Generation X. Um, and I'm real curious. And just, just to refresh people's memory, Generation X, people that were born between 1965 and, and 1980. John, you might be too, too young, but I definitely fall into the, the Generation X uh, category. And I guess my question is, is, is Generation X ready to inherit the, the leadership mantle? Uh, you know, or, or, or do we have any, any notable leaders or is our generation, you know, which is also known as the sandwich generation, are we too busy raising our kids and taking care of our aging parents such that, you know, we're sort of a, a nothing burger, if you will, when it comes to, to, to leadership? And, and I guess my question to you is, you know, will there be a, a president of the United States who comes from Generation X or are, and who might that be if you believe it is? And or are we just going to skip Generation X altogether and, uh, and elect a, a future president uh, from a, a much younger generation? Yeah. So first, I, you know, I'm not I'm not that young. I, uh, I always say <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm I always call myself the very first millennial. I was the first I was a millennial before it was cool. But, um, <laughs> Even though technically I'm, I am Gen X or Zillennial, I think is the correct designation. Um, but I, I think that there's a lot of Gen X politicians. I, I think that the rise of the millennial politicians is overrated. I mean, I think that you look at the people who get the most attention, like, uh, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or uh, Pete Buttigieg. I just I don't think I don't see them as being ready for prime time yet. And you've got a lot of folks on both sides of the aisle who are, you know, their stars, their, their stars is rising right now, starting on the older edge of Gen X in the Republican side, you've got like Mike Pompeo, who I think is certainly sees himself as a future president and has the experience to be a credible candidate, even though he may not have a broad enough base of support. Um, you got Ron DeSantis on the younger end of the Gen X side and the Republican side, who is an absolute rock star in the conservative movement right now. On the Democratic side, you got a lot of governors out there. Uh, Jared Paulus in Colorado, Gavin Newsom in California, uh, Andy Bashir in Kentucky. These are all kind of moderate to progressive uh, rising stars who are who are going to, you know, at some point term out of their roles as governor and are going to look for a role on the national stage. Interesting. So you got a, you got a lot of folks out there who I think are, are credible, you know, real candidates to be the you know president, the first Gen X president. And I, you know, baby boomers are having a hard time letting go, and <laughs> they've dominated. They've dominated the culture. They dominated my entire childhood with their endless sixties nostalgia, and now they're dominating my adulthood with their iron grip on politics. But mm -hmm. you know, they'll let go at some point. They're gonna they're gonna age out sometime in the next five years. And I think that there's a real opportunity for Gen X to to, to take over here. Interesting. All the candidates you mentioned were all men. Um, any yeah. any women up there? I mean, I'm I'm Nikki looking Haley, at somebody like Gina, I'm looking at Gina Raimondo or Amy Klobuchar sure. or anybody like that. Do you see them as viable paths? Yeah, I think Raimondo's got experience as governor. I think Klobuchar is overrated. Uh, Nikki Haley on the Republican side is an absolutely credible Republican candidate. Um, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of there's a lot of folks out there. Mm -hmm. 
I just say, as a representative of the baby boomers in this conversation, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, <laughs> we, 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 we need to step aside as a generation and uh, turn things over. I'm afraid the Gen Xers are going to be like Prince Charles or something. <laughs> well, <laughs> waiting and waiting. And we, we boomers just won't uh, give up. And it's not like we've been doing a bang up job. And, uh, you know, we just uh, shouldn't quit because uh, everything's going so well. Right, right. I mean, you know, advances in healthcare, meaning people are living, having longer lifespans, they're, they're active and, 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 and they're mentally acute enough for longer, long enough now that they can do these jobs. But, at, you know, at some point you need some fresh blood in there. You know, Gen X has always forgotten about it. Everybody sleeps on Gen X. I mean, I think that it's always the, the workplace battles were always between boomers and millennials. But the oh. Gen X the, are the leaders. They're going to have, you know, they're in the prime of their earning career right now. They're, uh, they're going to be rising to leadership positions across corporate America, and I think their time is going to come in politics as well. I bet if you looked at governors right now, I bet the majority of them are Gen X and not millennials. We've been, uh, Tori Gorman and I, uh, a Gen Xer and a boomer, have been talking with uh, John Lieber, who's a... Uh, uh, what's millennial. that? Yeah, another millennial. A millennial. Uh, a millennial. Millennial, yeah. So we got a multi-generational show here. Managing director of the Eurasia Group's United States practice and a former senior economic advisor to Senator Mitch McConnell. This is your host, Bob Bixby. I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 